Hey, hey, water coolants. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the podcast to celebrate America beating England's ass down the East Coast. Let's go. Uh, I don't know how well that will play since most of the show's audience uh, seems to come from the UK, from Europe. But I thought it was, you know, France was on our side, so maybe not all Europe. But I thought it was only right to display the hubris of being an American on July 4th. And of course, our hubris of yelling at kids just trying to enjoy playing baseball. Ah, America's pastime. Joined by author and founder of Motivational Check, Terry Tucker, Terry and I explore the ever-prevalent discourse currently happening in the zeitgeist of American dialogue to discuss how to better talk with one another. Terry, with a rich tapestry of experiences in business, athletic coaching, and law enforcement, uh, which includes hostage negotiation, brings a pretty grounded take to how we can go about that process. Because the main point of this podcast has always been about how do we create better conversations. We take tough topics, we make them more digestible, because we need to be having these conversations more and more. Whether it be uh, about the most recent decision by the Supreme Court before they head on to their summer break, where uh, some of them might be uh, getting a bit cozy with their billionaire pals that happen to want... The uh, the same the same thing that was am I reading this right? They want the same thing. The billionaires want the same thing that was decided upon, huh? That's very interesting. Very interesting. But these are the types of conversations that should be freely flowing out of our mouths because these are the decisions that will greatly impact our present and our future. In the same vein, and how I think about those who don't vote. That's fine. It's a part of the democratic process to choose to remain silent. But the people who you disagree with aren't. The people who are making others' lives harder aren't. Conversations are happening all around us. Yes, we can decide if we want to be a part of them. We can decide when we want to be a part of them. But we have to eventually want to be a part of them to create meaningful and long-lasting change. But we also have to be aware that not everyone shares the same voice or the same access to a voice. We need to help uplift those voices, help create platforms to share those voices, but we also need to understand the power and value of lifting up certain voices. For example, we should not be lifting up intolerant voices. Intolerance is a cancer that will eat us from the inside if we don't snuff it out. I know, I'm lactose intolerant. Obviously not the same thing. But, I mean, it kind of makes sense a little bit, right? If we consume hate, if we consume bigotry, if we consume violent rhetoric towards others, it's just going to come out the other end in a muddled mess that ruins the rest of our day. Makes sense now, right? <laughs> so how do we ensure better conversations? By having conversations that challenge us. By understanding where our disagreements come from. By not, once again, not yelling at Little League umpires and players over a game. It's simple. It really is but we actually have to put in the work to try. Understand that the world is bigger than the echo chamber you've created for yourself. There are over 8 billion people in our world. That's a lot of freaking people. And each one of those people see the world and its future slightly different. It's a tall order, won't be easy. Some unruly parents and anti-feminist podcasters will cry along the way, but it's a necessary step towards building a more inclusive and empathetic society built on grounded tenets. So, without further ado, let's just jump right into this bad boys, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to episode 82 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled, Born Full, with... And I'm Terry Tucker. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. 
because they're real. When I played against them, so many of them weren't what we know of them to be today. Mm -hmm. You know, I I mean, I I played in the same conference in Chicago with Isaiah Thomas, you know, went on to play at Indiana and and play with the Pistons and, you know, coach the Knicks and all that kind of stuff. He wasn't the Isaiah Thomas he was in the NBA. You know, Michael Jordan, I played against my senior year in college, his freshman year, 1982, you know, made that shot at the end to win the national championship and that, you know, James Worthy was really the star of that North Carolina team. Yes. And yet, you know, Jordan was the one, I mean, Worthy's still a Hall of Fame player, don't get me wrong or anything like that. You know, it's kind of like anything in life. If you play against better people, you get better. Mm -hmm. You know, if you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, that have better character than you, you know, those people are going to lift you up. It's not going to, you're not going to bring them down. So I always suggest that to people, you know, who are you surrounding yourself with? You know, is it people that make you a better individual or is it people that it's all about drama and it's all about them and things like that? You know, if, if that's the case, get those people out of your life and surround yourself with people that are better. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it, it's so important. One of my favorite sayings is if you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. I mean, yeah, it is. It's room. so important to surround yourself with people that make you better and constantly challenge you. And kind of, you know, what we'll talk about in this uh, first story that's coming up is there's so much importance in challenging who you are and your beliefs and your understanding of the world, because that's really how you grow as a person. And obviously, athletically, it's important to surround yourself with people that understand the game and see the game in such a different way that they're playing on levels that I mean, Michael Jordan is by far the greatest player to ever play the game. Even some of these other players I mentioned, they're very good players, maybe it didn't translate to the pro levels, but to play at a high collegiate level is still very impressive. And a lot of these players have gone on to coach because that experience still matters. It, it does. And, and it's funny, because usually, great players don't make good coaches. And I, I had the opportunity uh, when I was in high school to have Mike Szyzewski, you know, Coach K, yep. come to my house, sit on my couch and say, hey, come play for me at West Point. And I, you know, I said no. So I'm, I'm sure you're going to end the interview right now because of, <laughs> you know, what an idiot I was. But you you, you look at somebody like that and, and Coach K has so many great stories where he played for Bobby Knight when Bobby Knight was the coach at Indiana. And Knight told him, if you ever shoot the ball, you'll be sitting on the bench, mm-hmm. you know. And and so it was one of those things. We all have unique skills. We all, especially in team sports or, or any team, we have unique things that we bring to make the team better. And I think Coach K, you know, emphasized that certainly. You look at how, what a great college career and coaching the Olympics and all that kind of stuff. But he wasn't the Coach K, you know, back in 1978 when I was graduating from high school that he ended up being, you know, at Duke and, and with the Olympic team and stuff. Yeah, I mean, as you can see from the color of my show, my uh, my support of blue doesn't run into Duke blue. So you're okay there. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Terry, are you ready to jump into our very first story of this episode? Sure, why not? This is from the fire.org news desk written by Alex Moray. Uh, October 22nd, 2015. Speaker disinvited from uncomfortable learning series for making students uncomfortable. Students at William College in Massachusetts disinvited self-described cultural critic Suzanne Venker, a conservative author, podcaster, and vocal critic of feminism, from their uncomfortable learning speaker series after several students protested her scheduled talk on campus. 
The Speaker Series, which William College describes as an effort to provide countering or unheard of opinions on a variety of issues, is an unofficial, unregistered campus club run by students and funded by Williams alumni. The college itself is not involved in the club's decisions. Zach Wood, co-president of the group, was reluctant to cancel Suzanne, but security concerns brought on by the hostile response to her invitation prompted the decision to cancel her talk. Mary Detlaff, a spokesperson for the college, stated they, the, the group organizers, were, were feeling very uncomfortable about the amount of protests and the tenor of the protest that was going on. Students were being very vocal about not wanting her to come. I think it was just getting a little bit over the top. Since Williams is a private college, the school is not obligated under the First Amendment to guarantee freedom of speech to students, faculty, and incoming guest speakers. And even if it was obligated to make those guarantees, student groups would still be free to change their minds about who they want to bring to campus as long as the administration did not interfere. Uh, so Terry, as I mean, you were previously mentioned, you're a speaker with a long history of opportunities to share your opinions, your beliefs, your stories. Is this something you've had to deal with before? And if not, how would you engage in this situation if you know you were presented to a group of students who may not want what you, I mean, I've had the opportunity to listen to your lot of podcasts and there's nothing really controversial that you're sharing, but you never know what kind of audiences you go into. You, you, you don't. And, and I, I feel sad, I guess, for lack of a better word for those students, to be honest. I've never experienced that. I've never had somebody say, Hey, you know, we're, we're going to have this, this speaker. No, I don't want him. He he's controversial in some way. I, I I like to think that I present what I feel is the truth. And if you can't handle that, then that that's your problem. And it's certainly your prerogative to go ahead and say, we don't want this speaker. We we want somebody else. And I get that. And, and I wouldn't take it personally if that were the case. But mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of ways, when you when you do that, when you disenfranchise a speaker, you're all, all almost making that speaker more prominent. Yes. You know, because, it, it, you know, you look at that kind of thing and it's like, whoa, this person must be really confident. You know, you give them more attention as opposed to if you just allowed them to come and say what they want to say. And again, it's the United States of America. We're free to go to that lecture and listen to that woman or we're free to say, you know what, not my cup of tea. I, I remember when I was in college at the Citadel. I mean, this isn't quite like it, but I, there was a, a chamber music concert and I'm like, well, I don't know if I like chamber music, but I'll go and listen to it. <laughs> yep. And I came away from it saying, no, not my cup of tea, not something that, that I enjoyed. But if I had just said, oh, it's chamber music, I'm not going to it. How would I have known? How would I have been able to have that experience? And, and so I, I think it's kind of a it, it's kind of a shame that we're in that society where you know, it's almost like, I don't like what's going on. So I'm going to take my toys and leave the sandbox. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think what you said about, you know, the importance of sharing truth, like in a lot of these speaking opportunities, and obviously, you know, I've been able to be fortunate to have a lot of speaking opportunities as well. You know, people can argue facts. That's, that's a fair case. But as long as you're bringing your truth to the table, you're sharing your truth, people can't argue that. That's something they can't argue. Uh, but then also to your point about, I mean, now we are literally talking about this woman. I had a chance to listen to a few of her things and read a few, a few of her things, and I don't agree with a lot of what she's saying. I would never personally invite her on my show, but that doesn't mean she doesn't have something to say. And I do think 
that these students are missing out on an opportunity to engage with someone that they don't agree with, to to really hear opinions that uh, aren't in the quote unquote echo chamber of you know what some of these colleges have become, where it's only we can only talk about certain things, and if there's other things that go against what we want to what we want to talk about, yeah, we're going to take our toys and go somewhere else and not engage with you, as you're saying. I, I, I was going to say when when I was in high school, I, I graduated with with a young man who went on to become a teacher and actually became a, a teacher at my high school. It was a a large Catholic high school on the south side of Chicago, and and he taught you know sort of the civics history type of classes. And everybody loved his course. And I remember one, one semester, he brought in to speak to his students, the head of the Nazi party in Chicago. Mm. I'm bringing this person in to give you another side of the coin here. Now, you're going to have to judge as smart, articulate, free-thinking individuals if you think this guy has merit or if you think he's full of baloney and you don't want to have anything to do with him. Yes. But that's where critical thinking comes in. That's where, you know, it's important to do it. And if you have nothing to base it on other than, I mean, let's face it, Adam, we, we like to clump with people that are like us. You it's know, human we, nature. Yeah. Yeah. We are uncomfortable, you know, on the, but oh my God, can you imagine how boring life would be if we were all the same? <laughs> well, that's, there was this, uh, this really, oh, I can't remember the name of the woman, but she spoke at this Oxford union and she talked about, I mean, pretty much to sum up what she said is, the speaker's name is Anne Whittacombe, and here are a few of her words from her mouth directly. Nobody has the right to live their lives being protected from offence or from insult or from hurt feelings. It is an occupational hazard of living in society. And if you really can't take it, become a hermit. Society is real. It's, you know, people are going to have different beliefs than you. And yes, I do believe you should get the opportunity to choose a uh, pick and choose when those beliefs challenge you. Because if you're not in the space to have beliefs challenge you, then it's totally fine to say this is not what I want. I'm not comfortable with this. Uh, but you can't always be in that space. You have to find times in your life where uh, you're challenged by what you have to say. Because if you go throughout life not having your beliefs challenged, do you really understand what you believe? There has to be pushback on what you believe to really understand, oh yeah, this is why I stand for this. Right. And there's there's a there's a man by the name of uh Al, Alvin Toffler. He's he's a NYU grad. He, he died a couple years ago, but he had a great saying. He said, "The illiterate of the 21st century will will not be the person who can who can't read or write. It'll be the person who can't learn, unlearn and relearn." And I, and I think that's where we are right now. We, if my beliefs are such are so set in stone that they can never change, if you can never, you know, morph your beliefs and things, then that's. I mean, in a way, you're illiterate. I mean, I mean, you can't you can't see the other side. You can't give me the other. You know, when when I was in business, people would say, "Well, this is what I think." You know, we should do. And I would always say, "Okay, well." Tell me what the competition is going to say about, you know, if, if this is what you want to do and this is, you know, the message you want to convey. What's the competition going to say? Mm -hmm. What's the other side of this coin? Yeah. And if you know the other side of that coin, then you're going to be able to refute what they say. Are you going to like, yeah, they're right. You know, our, our product isn't as good or, or our service isn't as good, whatever that is. But if you think, you know, this is the only way you can do things, 
gosh, I, I mean, how horrible <laughs> is that? I mean, there's yeah. only one way to do things in the world. No, there's a million things. You just got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I'm a very big supporter of the First Amendment, but just because you have freedom of speech doesn't mean there's not freedom of consequences of what you say. Other people can very much respond to what you say and say, you know, if you say this, I can say, well, that's stupid. I mean, I have the right to say that. And that doesn't mean I'm violating your free speech right. uh, because I'm a big believer that democracy prevails when we have respectful productive dialogue and debate. And here was an opportunity for these students to have that debate, to bring their concerns about this person and how she views the world and say, hey, I see how you view the world. This is how I view the world and have this conversation. Whether the Suzanne would have been open to it, I don't know. You know, I can't get a good sense from her content if she would be. Uh, like I said, I wouldn't invite her on my platform. Right. But then at that same time, you do have to understand that it is sometimes dangerous to give platforms to certain individuals. Like, I, I truly believe that we should not be giving platforms to uh, white domestic terrorists like the Boogalows, the Proud Boys, the uh, the Patriot Front. I don't think we should be giving a platform to them. I don't think what they have to say has any value in the world. But I do think there is important to talking to people on the extremes and trying to find those people that are willing to listen. Um, there's this really uh, amazing guy. I think his name is Daryl Henderson. His name is Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis, a black man. And he would go talk to KKK members and just share like, I'm a person. We are having this amazing conversation back and forth. Why do you hate me because of the color of my skin? Something I cannot control whatsoever. And they just had these really good conversations. He converted a lot of, you know, these members over to being like, yeah, I'm going to leave this hate behind. But to be able to have that conversation, he has to find people that are willing to listen. And when you get to those extremes, a lot of the time they're not willing to listen. And I don't think we should be platforming any of those people. And I think it's right to cancel somebody if they're not willing to listen to the other side. I, I would agree. I, I mean, you know, we have free speech to a point. You know, you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. You know, <laughs> yeah. it, that, that's against the law. I mean, mm-hmm. you, know, you have people trampled to death. So, yeah, you have free speech to a point. And I agree with you. I, I think if 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 that speech is inciting discrimination, is inciting violence, then then we need to stop that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if, if you said, you know, hey, everybody, you know, run outside now, run outside this door because you knew everybody was going to fall off a cliff. You know, you would be like, no, you you, you can't say that. We're, we can't allow you to do that. Yep. Same way with you can't yell a fire in a crowded movie theater. So we have free speech as long as it doesn't harm other people. And, mm-hmm. and now we can get into a whole discussion on, you know, how, how, how are you harmed? No, I do think it is interesting when we talk about hate speech on what exactly is hate speech. Because I truly believe if you ask 100 people what they would uh, define hate speech as and give an example, you're going to get 100 different answers. And so what somebody might think as their belief another person might think of as hate. And so I think we need to do a better job of having these types of conversations and really getting clear on that language. I mean, we talk a lot about it on the show is like how important words are and how important definitions are and how we talk about words because it can get very confusing very fast when you have, I mean, 300 million plus people in the US, 8 billion people in the the world that these things are going to get confusing if we don't have productive and w- once again, I think it's very important, productive, meaningful and respectful conversation. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the Supreme Court has already said, you know, I mean, I think back to my days as a police officer and I would probably get you taken off the air if I said all the things that I've been called, you know, as 
as a police officer. But the Supreme Court has said, sorry, you don't have the luxury of, you know, doing anything when somebody calls you an, an MF or, or, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. I mean, it's it's part of your job. You have to let people say the things that they want to say to you. And and again, that goes back. OK, fine. You know, I, I used to tell people, why do you care what other people say? I, I mean, we are so hung up. I, there, a great book I just read uh, called Do Hard Things by a man by the name of Steve Magnus. And, and he tells the story in the book. I don't remember if it was a professor or a researcher or what it is. The study was done by psychologists from the University of Virginia and Harvard to tackle the question of why most of us find it hard to do nothing. Who put mostly young people in a room by themselves with nothing in the room but a table and a chair. And the only other thing in the room was a buzzer. And if you press the buzzer, you got an electric shock. So you weren't allowed to take your, you know, your... Uh, your devices in your phone, you know, cell phones, nothing. So you might seventy five percent of the men and twenty eight percent of the women shocked themselves because. And what that told them was you're not comfortable with who you are. So if you're not comfortable with you, how can you start to project that? You know, it's like you you're wrong, you're bad, you can't do that. And, and it's like we we got to get away from this. You're important. It's all about you. This this mentality that somehow, you know, if I'm offended, then the whole world has to stop. Mm-hmm. I got news for you. Nobody cares about you. Nope. <laughs> well, I, that's, I that's, just... that's such a good point because I think we have this issue and I think social media definitely helps uh, exasperate it that, you know, these small, uh, small minorities happen to be very loud and we tend to listen and create policy and laws around these small, loud voices when really... The majority of uh, uh, society just wants to live their life, just wants to, you know, obviously they care about, you know, important issues, uh, but they just really want to live their life. And like, I don't want to deal with your shit. I'm trying to deal with my own shit. But we're so uh, attuned to these small, loud voices that are creating these, uh, even like in the story, one of the uh, opponents to have the Suzanne on campus would talked about like, these organizers would have the blood on their hands of of brown and black trans individuals. And that's, man, that's extreme to say that stuff. Or even, you know, listening to some of Suzanne's comments, she uh, obviously very anti-feminism, but a lot of her clients that are coming to her are having these issues that go into what she believes. And so she's taking a few people and describing all of uh, uh, women based on these few people. And I mean, we can't have this type of reaction to somebody whose beliefs that we might not fall in line with because they're right. You know, if you live in society, people are going to say, hey, screw you. I believe in something different than you. That doesn't mean I'm wrong, but that doesn't mean you're also right. And you can't go into this, this conversation that I'm the only person that's right. I know exactly what's right because if you do, man, like like you said, it's going to be a very tough life. It, it really is. And my, my wife and I were talking about this. You know, I, I'm much older than you are. And, and you know, when, when we were growing up and we were, you know, in our 30s and 40s and that there was this, you know, you could you could have a political discourse with another person that you didn't agree with and then go to dinner afterwards. Mm-hmm. And today it's, Adam, you're pro-abortion. I'm Catholic. I'm anti-abortion. You're a bad person. We we can't we can't have a relationship. We can't go. I mean, there's somehow we've gotten to a point where if we don't agree on one thing or a couple things, that the other person is bad now. 
and and I can't have a relationship with them. Well, I mean, we're all different. We're all unique. We all, I, I mean, so what does that mean? None of us can ever have a relationship with somebody else because you will work long enough. You're going to find something you disagree with on a person that doesn't make you a bad person. Yes. It just means we disagree on a particular subject or, or, or whatever we're talking about. And I think we've got to, we've got to stop the, the, the hate, the, you know, you're bad. You don't agree with me. So you're a bad person. No, you just don't agree with me. And I kind of want to talk to you about that, you know, your time spent in law enforcement. Like, what are the important aspects of like finding and creating compromise? Because I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you worked in hostage negotiation and obviously there has to be some compromise. Obviously, you can't give them everything they want, but you also can't get everything you want. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things we did as negotiators is we never gave something without getting something. Yeah. So, you know, somebody would say, you know, hey, you know, I want a pizza. And we would say, give us a hostage or give us a magazine out of your gun or give us. I, I mean, you weren't getting anything unless we were were getting something. Mm-hmm. Adam, the, the, the overarching part of being a hostage negotiator was like any relationship you have, trust. There were, I mean, there's all kinds of techniques I could I could tell you about, but but the overarching thing is was really trust. And and we would have people that would say to us, "Hey, I'll let the hostage go, or I'll come out, but you've got to promise me I won't go to jail." And we would have to say, "I'm sorry, when you come out, you are going to jail." And then we would deflect the conversation to something you know that was more palatable for for both of us. So and and the reason we did that was not because it was some great technique. The reason we did that was there was a very good possibility, and this certainly happened, that a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, we would be right back in the same situation negotiating with you because the problem didn't go away mm-hmm. and you didn't get the help you need or, you know, your mother's still here and that, that's what drove you nuts to, you know, to take a gun and barricade yourself, whatever it was. So it was really if we didn't have that trust, if we got back with this person and they're like, hey, Tucker, the last time we talked, you lied to me. And if that happened, then the trust is out the window and you're going to have to bring another another negotiator in, you know, to negotiate with that person. So trust, like any relationship, you know, parent, child, you know, husband, wife, boss, subordinate, whatever it is, trust was the overarching element in that relationship. And we've got to get back to that in some way in, in this country that, that that you're a person of integrity. You know, I, I've always said, I don't really care what you say. I'm going to watch what you do. Mm-hmm. And if we, what you do matches with what you say, okay, then I think we're in good shape. But I'm like I said, I'm old enough and I'm sick enough right now that it's like, I, if you're one of those people that talks a lot, but your actions don't mimic what you say, I don't want anything to do with you. I, I don't have time for those kind of phony people yeah. in my life. No, it, it's, I'm actually 70, Terry. It's just a lot of sunscreen throughout my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I think a lot of what you said has a lot of uh, very strong merit. I mean, trust is so important. And also, I, I, I believe empathy is also very important, especially within society and talking with one another. Uh, I think obviously COVID did a absolute number on us as far as how our relationships go. I remember my barber talked about how he had a client come in and uh, he had this, uh, the client had this like bad interaction in line at a grocery store. Uh, he was like standing in line and the guy he thought was too close to him. And he just immediately went to anger. Immediately was like, hey, get the F away from me. You know, I'm following your no swearing on this one. Uh, get the F away from me. And then in that moment, obviously, he was st- kind of smart enough to apologize and be like, I don't know where that came from. 
But I think there are, you know, uh, relationship issues that we're having because of isolation. And obviously, you know, this isolation problem that we talked uh, with Frank a few episodes ago. Uh, but it's becoming an issue on how we interact with one another because we're losing the ability to realize that this other person is a actual person right. with, you know, a family, a life, career goals. I mean, not always career goals, goals in general, dreams, like stuff they enjoy, movies they like. And we've kind of lost that. We just see these people as another kind of annoyance in our life when really we just have to kind of focus in and be like, all right, these are other people's. I'm not the main character of, I'm the main character of my story, but I'm not the main character of the whole story. You're right. And and it's it's interesting because I've come to kind of understand life a little bit differently. And I'll, I'll try to explain it this way. We seem, and I think a lot of this has to do with marketing and, and things like that. You know, you, you, you got to eat at this restaurant. You got to drive this car. You got to wear this clo- these clothes and things like that. We seem to think that we're born empty mm. and that we, when we get into life, you know, after we get out of high school or college or whatever you end up doing, and you start to get into life, that your job is to fill yourself up. You know, I've got to have a great job. I've got to make a lot of money. I've got to drive a nice car. I've got to live in a nice house. I've got to have a great family. I've got to be educated. I've got to... I've got to fill myself up. And Adam, what, I'm, what I've come to learn is it's just the opposite. We're not born empty. We're born full. We're born with everything we need to be successful in our lives already inside of us. We just got to find that and pull it out. I, I mean, imagine how much better the world would be if it wasn't, hey, you know what? I got to get stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I got to consume and I've got to, you know, I've got to be better than you. And I've got to be, you know, I've got to make more money than you. And I got to live in a nicer house than you. What if it was... I'm born full. And my job is to empty myself out for the betterment of myself, my family, my community, my God, whatever it is you believe. Think how much better the world would be if it wasn't, it's all about me. No, it's what I can do to give you. It's not what you can get. It's what you can give. I like that. I like that. Born full. That might be the title of this episode. Uh, I would like to welcome to the show author and founder of Motivational Check, Terry Tucker. Terry intertwined a decade-long battle with cancer with a rich and unique tapestry of personal life experiences in business, athletic coaching, and law enforcement to author his own book titled Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Terry, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. I appreciate it, Adam. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Uh, You have previously touched upon the value of integrity and being honest with oneself. Uh, can you share a bit about your journey within that world specifically and how that journey has shaped uh, the value of that word integrity to you? I, I think I have to go all the way back to my parents, in all honesty. You know, my, my mom and dad raised three sons. I, you know, I'm six foot eight and played college basketball at the Citadel. I've got a brother who's six foot seven who pitched for the University of Notre Dame. Another brother who's six foot six who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers and the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six five. So I sort of joke, if you sat behind our family in church growing up, not a prayer's chance you're going to see anything that was going on whatsoever. But our five foot eight inch mother was really the boss. You know, it didn't matter how big, tall, strong we were, whatever mom said, that's the way it went. And my parents taught us the value of family of loving each other, of caring for each other, of supporting each other. And they used to do what I call divide and conquer parenting, where, you know, I'd have a game on a particular night at this location, and my brother would have a practice at the exact same time at another location. So mom and dad were always kind of dividing and conquering and and getting us to our things. But we lived in a family where we never wanted friends. My parents totally supported us. And I think 
that was, uh, you know, I, I remember I'm going to jump right into another story. You kind of got to hang with me. I'm like a super Fair enough. You know, when, when I, I remember having a, a job interview for a marketing position and I was meeting with the senior vice president of marketing and we spent 90 minutes, an hour and a half. And the entire time he asked me all kinds of questions about what it was like in my family and growing up and playing basketball in high school and college and everything. Not one question about marketing, not one question about my philosophy, you know, on business or anything. And I ended up taking a job and I, and I asked him later, I'm like, gee, your, your line of questioning, I thought was a little, I think the word I used was goofy. So, you know, why did you, why did you do that? He said, well, I've got plenty of people around me that'll tell me whether you're good at marketing or whether you would be a good fit for the team. He said, I'm looking to hire people of good character. And he said, I believe your characters developed in the first 20 years of your life. So that's why I asked you about growing up and your family relationships in high school and college and all that kind of stuff. He said, because I believe that character is caught, not taught. You know, it's not something like you can read a book or take a class. and No, a person of good character. No, you look at people, you, you see things and you're like, boy, I really like the way she handled that. Or you know what? I didn't like the way that guy did that, you know, whatever it was. And that's how you develop your character. And you really, I mean, you can tweak it a little bit as you grow up as, I mean, as you're an adult and things like that. But I, you know, that was reinforced in, you know, I went to a military college and things like that. So character, humility, things like that were incredibly important. I mean, and let's face it, you become a police officer, not because you want to get rich, because you're not going to get rich, <laughs> but because you want to make a difference in your community. Yeah. I, I just, I, I mean, it's, it's service. Again, it's going back to the, are we born full or are we born empty? And can we empty ourselves out to make the world a better place? Yeah, no, I mean, that's hopefully what you want in the police force is right. Strong moral principles. Uh, but I think that is so important how your character grows and uh, is, improve throughout your life and surrounding yourself i mean all the way back to kind of where we first started this conversation uh the people that you surround yourself with and you know really putting yourself in situations i mean most people i would assume i mean i'll maybe just speak for myself on this so i don't go to other people's uh, beliefs but i would assume that most people can understand that over time they're in a situation that's just not working for them they're surrounded by people that may not be the best for them and I, I understand it's it's incredibly hard to get yourself out of situations, whether it be surrounding yourself with bad people, whether it be uh, uh, where you live, obviously plays a huge factor. I mean, I've talked about this before. I mean, it's just pure luck that we were born to the people we were born with. But obviously, who we become, that's our choice. And when you go through life, you have to make those choices to better yourself and uh, improve from where you started. Because if you don't, you're just going to be another person in the world who didn't, I mean, you don't need to add anything fantastic to the world, but I do believe you have to add something to the world. I, I, I agree with you. And I, I'll tell you a quick story from my law enforcement career. My my partner and I, I mean, obviously I'm white. My partner was white as well. And uh, we ran an entirely African-American neighborhood. I, I mean, it, it was all black. And I remember there was a there was a there was a guy who was kind of a hanger on her. You know, he he hung out with the dope boys and stuff like that. But he wasn't a bad guy and he didn't have a bad record. I mean, most of his offenses were driving without a license or, you know, or something like that. And I remember, you know, my partner and I had this we got this idea together. And so one night we rolled up on the dope boys. And of course, they all scatter. And we grab him. We put him in handcuffs. We put him in the back of our car. And we take him up to the tennis courts behind the high school. And I'm sure he thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get my ass kicked. 
you know, and stuff like that. And we pull them out. We unhandcuff them and said, just listen to us. Like, look, you owe $500 to get your license reinstated. My partner and I are willing to pay that for you. And we also know that you don't have a, a college or a high school diploma or a GED. We know somebody that will get you hooked up to get your GED. And we also have somebody that will give you a job. It wasn't in that same neighborhood. We, we figured we had to get them out of the neighborhood. To get them out of the neighborhood, we'll give you a job. Are you interested in that? Because if you keep hanging around with the people you're hanging around with, just like we were talking about before, they are going to drag you down. You are not going to lift them up. They are going to drag you down. Yeah. And, and we knew what the answer was probably going to be. We knew he was going to say no because, I mean, it's he grew up in that neighborhood. These were the people he grew up with and things like that. But we had to try. We had to give it a shot because he was somebody worth saving. He was somebody that we thought we could we could make a difference in, the, in his life. And he said no to us. And, and I ended up going to the drug unit. And then my, my partner came to the drug unit. About 18 months later, he was involved in an armed robbery and, you know, was doing 15 years in the Ohio penitentiary, was a convicted felon. And, you know, his life was over. And you're like, but you tried. You know, you, that's all I can do. Yeah. That's all I, I can give you an opportunity. If you don't want to take it, there's nothing I can do about that. Yeah, you have to try and you have to try to build those relationships. But also on the other end, you have to have somebody who's willing to try as well. You need that. I mean, it's like a relationship, right? You have to, uh, you both can't just put in 50-50. You both have to put in, you know, 100% for it to really work and to things to change. And I know you've had another um, uh, example that you shared in another podcast where you talked about where you were like looking for a certain car and uh, some other officers had pulled over this car and didn't explain to them like what was going on. And they're like, yeah, of course, they're going to be freaked out. And that trust that we're talking about is going to erode and that relationship is going to erode. And then you coming in and kind of explaining, hey, this is the type of car we're looking for. You're driving a similar car. And I think that's important just to show people going back to kind of what we we're talking about, show people empathy and that they're actually humans and building that trust in a relationship is so important, whether it be, you know, the police in their communities or having conversations on campus or just talking to one another in everyday life. And that's just it. it it's just, I, I mean, did it, did it take 15 seconds to explain to these people in this car that, you know, oh, the police pulled me over because we were black. No, we pulled you over because your car matched the description of somebody wanted, you know, in an armed robbery. You are not the people. Thank you for cooperation. Have a safe night. You're free to go. You know, I, I mean, people get that. They understand mm -hmm. if you explain it to them, and, and, you know, again, in the heat of the moment, I might not be able to explain it to you. But once things calm down, yeah, let me go tell you why we did what we did. It's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's that's we are our own worst enemy in law enforcement when we think that we're we're too big, we're too important, we're too powerful to explain to somebody why you did what you did. I'm telling you, you can get yourself out of so many problems <laughs> if you just explain why you did what uh -huh. you did. Well, Terry, before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. And on the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you listening to this episode to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. Terry, your, your charity of choice for today's episode is Marist High School in Chicago. Can you share with us the school's significance to you and your work and why they're a good fit for our conversation today? Yeah, it's a, it's where I, I graduated from high school. Um, my, my brother has been the principal and now the president of the school 
for the last 25 years. You know, when I went there, it was an all boys school. It is now a, a co-ed school. And, and my brother, it, it was started by a, a French uh, priest by the name of Marshall and Champagne. And my brother just constantly espouses the values of, of caring for people, of loving each other. You know, I, I mean, you've got Hispanics, you've got whites, you've got blacks. Everybody's it's it's a melting pot. And, 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 and the one common denominator is this value of wanting to, to give back, to wanting, you know, to educate young men and young women to take that out into the world and make the world a better place. So I could think of nothing better than to support my brother in that mission at Marist High School. Yeah, no, I appreciate you bringing him on the show today. All right. Well, are you ready to jump into some Little League, uh, some argumentative parents? I love it. Yes, sports. All right. This is from ABC News. Good morning, America. April 25th, 2023. Town forces argumentative parents to be umpires at Little League games. With the Little League season well underway, the New Jersey township of Deptford is introducing an ingenious new rule to crack down on misbehavior after several parents were caught on camera berating and yelling at referees and umpires during their children's youth games. Referees and umpires, who often volunteer, have been resigning at an alarming rate as the rise of shouting matches increases from the stands. Don Bazufi, Deptford Township Little League president, stated, They're coming here, they're being abused, they don't need that, and then they're leaving. Uh, the umpires he's talking about. So now the Little League officials in Deptford have created a solution to this growing trend. If a parent or another spectator fights with the umpire, the arguer must volunteer to officiate for at least three upcoming games and won't be able to return to the complex until doing so. Brian Barlow, founder of Offside, a Facebook page to call out bad behavior by parents, which I think that's so hilarious that that exists, stated, People are very comfortable making officials uncomfortable, so it's about time that we've reversed the trend and started making people uncomfortable who are harassing officials. Stephen Keener, Little League International President and CEO, thinks the solution is a, and I think he meant the pun here, a home run. Little League International expects its participants and fans to adhere to the highest level of sportsmanship while attending local league events. We applaud the volunteers at Defford Township Little League for coming up with a creative, fun solution to, to shine a light on the importance of treating everyone with respect on and off the field. If the rule does go into effect and someone has to volunteer to suit up, officials say a certified umpire will also be on the baseball field to make sure calls are correct. Organizers say the point is for the parents to see what it's like on the field and how the job might not be as easy as it looks. So Terry, it sounds like obviously you've done your fair share of coaching. What has been your experience with unruly parents and the impact it has on the players and their kids that you are coaching? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yes, I coached. Uh, grade school. And I think that's a little bit different than high school and, and, and college and that like that. Okay. But even in high school, I, I mean, I used to have a parent meeting with, with the parents before the season started and I would tell them, and I would sort of do a tongue in cheek. Look, I played basketball all the way up through college. Most of you never even played in high school. So I promise you that if you don't try to tell me how to do my job, I won't come to your work and tell you how to do your job. And I needed to say that because I mean, we would call a timeout and I would tell the players what to do. And then some dad in the stands would yell at their kid and tell them to do something else. And I was like, please, I, I'm the coach. You are. But I was getting paid. It was high school. So, I, you know, I was getting paid to do it mm -hmm. in literally, you know, in, 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 in middle school and things like that. Are you kidding? I remember Frank Martin, who was the basketball coach at South Carolina, the men's coach from, I think, 12, 2012. He just retired in 2022. 
he has a great YouTube video that you can, and, and he, he says, you know what? When my kids play basketball, I don't say a word. There are, you know, two guys that are making what? 15 bucks, 10 bucks, you know, to referee a fourth grade basketball game on a Sunday morning and you're giving them a hard time. And, you know, you're in the in the stands screaming at the coach who's volunteering his or her time to teach your kids this this game. It makes no sense to me. You know, I always tell my kids with the coach. No, you go talk to the coach. You know, if the coach is disrespecting you or something like that, you know, if, if something happens and you fall down. I'm the dad. I'll come there and help pick you up. But I want you to learn those lessons that sports teaches you, how to be coached, how to be a teammate, how to lose. I'll give you a a quick story. When I was first started playing basketball, uh, we were living in Columbus, Ohio for a short period of time. And I just happened to get on the team with the son of the assistant coach at Ohio State University. And so it was he and I, and I was tall, and he was a good player. So we dominated. I mean, our team just rolled. And, I mean, for like two seasons, we didn't lose a game. Mm-hmm. And then the third season, we lost a game. And I'm out, I'm out in the hallway crying. We, we, lost, we lost one game. We ended up going out and winning the championship. But we lost <laughs> one game during the season. Yeah. And I'm crying. I remember my dad was our coach. He came out. I was like, what are you doing? We lost the game, Dad. He's like, you better knock that off right now. You're going to lose a lot in life. You're probably going to lose more than you're going to win. Mm-hmm. So you better learn how to lose. I'm not sure it was the greatest, you know, parenting thing of, you know, teaching me uh, what was going on. But it was basically saying, yeah, get over yourself. You know, th- this isn't really that important. Those are the things that athletics teaches you. Yeah, there's a good line. I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan at all, but Picard says this line about how it is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness. That is life. And I think sports are a great teacher for that. I think that's why I think, you know, high school sports should be as uh, um, inclusive as possible because yes, winning is important and understanding why winning is important and strategy, but it's also uh, high school sports and especially high school all the way down to, I mean, I don't know when kids start playing sports these days, but it's all about learning how to work together and be a team, obviously, if it's a team sport, but also learning the values that come with sports that have endeared sports into our day-to-day lives, you know, baseball being America's pastime, football being as massive as it is, both, you know, football American and football around the world. So it's so important that kids have this opportunity to learn and to grow and to be their own selves away from their parents. I mean, I grew up playing baseball. I remember umping. It was 20 bucks a game. And yet there were parents all the time that were yelling at you. And you're like a 13-year-old kid. And you're like, what? what is going on here? Like, how how old are you? Like, what are you doing? You're yelling at a 13-year-old kid for, you know, a call that you're seeing from, you know, 20, 30 yards away. And I'm right there. It gets ridiculous. But even playing baseball, I remember like... um. I remember some kids getting chewed out during the games by their parents. And I remember going back to the dugout and just being like to this kid, I'm like, are you okay? Like, that's completely unacceptable. I obviously didn't use those words because I, you know, obviously was a kid at that time. But I was like, that's really just unacceptable behavior. I could see how uncomfortable he was crying. I'm like, now that kid is going to live with that the rest of their life. So when their parents are like, are you going to take care of me when you're older? 
they're probably not going to take care of you when they're older. And the parents are going to wonder why. It's, well, you're yelling at your kid at a freaking Little League baseball game. I mean, get over yourself. I think, you know, obviously, as I was saying, sports have been so ingrained into the cultural fabric of America. But man, some people just take that stuff way too seriously. And you have to understand at the end of the day, sports are games. And yes, there's a lot of money being involved when it gets to obviously this whole BS with betting every other commercial. And there's a lot of money involved in these sports. But at the end of the day, it's just a game. People are doing it because they enjoy doing it. And that really has to be the ethos of going to a little league game and realizing that these kids are playing baseball because they want to play baseball and they enjoy the game. They enjoy going out with their friends. They enjoy going to Dairy Queen after to get blizzards. These are all part of growing up. And, you know, as we talked about building that character to live a life with great moral principles. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and that's that's, I think, the, the problem. I mean, our, our, our daughter got my height. Um, went to the Air Force Academy, you know, to play basketball and, and things like that, but was involved in the whole AAU, you know, thing, you know, travel teams and all that kind of stuff. And if you had my wife on here, she would go on for about an hour and a half about how much <laughs> she hates, you know, what that does to mm-hmm. kids, yeah. you know, and, and things like that. But but that's the way, you know, and, and that's the thing. Every parent thinks their kid is the next LeBron James or, you know, Mike Trout or, you know, Aaron Judge or whatever it ends up being. And and, and just statistically, there's not a prayer's chance that that's, <laughs> that's going to happen at all. Uh-huh. And yep. I referred earlier to Steve Magnus, who wrote the book, Do Hard Things, and, and the, you know, the story about the table and, and shocking yourself. Well, Magnus was the track and field coach at the University of Minnesota, something near and dear to your heart. Yeah. And, and he talks about how parents should act. And I, I wrote some notes. He, 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 he talks, he said, the fire has to come from the kids. Make sure your kids are doing it because they want to, not because they see you and that you love the game. You need to love and support them. You know, the car ride home is the most important. Support your kids, win or lose. Resist the mood to go or the desire to go into coaching mode. Teach your kids how to lose. You know, the earlier a person learns how to process, learn, and grow from failure, the better and more well-adjusted they will be in life. You know, if your kids are going to be great, they're going to be great. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter whether you put them in AEU. It doesn't matter whether you take them out, you know, and put them in another school. It doesn't matter if you move to another state so they can play sports. If they're good and they're good enough to make it to the next level, they will be found. I mentioned my brother a minute ago. His school is fairly large. They they produce some, you know, Division One, a lot of Division One sports. And Brian Kelly, when Brian Kelly was at Notre Dame football uh, coach, he came in and recruited one of their players. Well, this player also loved basketball, which was the next season after football. But you know what? I'm going to sign at Notre Dame, one of the premier schools in the country. And they they asked Kelly. They said, "Hey, you know, is it okay if he plays basketball?" And Kelly was like, sure, let the kid be a kid. If he loves basketball and being with his friends and playing, I, I got no problem, you know, with him doing that. And and that's coming from, you know, a top tier uh, coach in, in college athletics. Yeah. And as much as I do support, you know, like what's going on with the NIL deals and everything and these players that are making all these college programs, the money getting paid, I do think it takes away some of the 
the onus of what the game is about. Because, I mean, uh, speaking to college football and the NFL, I think like 1% to 2% of college football players are going to that next level. Right. So most players, I mean, this is their last chance to play a game they love at the highest possible level. And yes, I do very much support that they should be compensated for that time, for the amount of energy they have to put into it, the amount of money the school makes off of these kids. But at the end of the day, man, you know, a lot of kids, yeah, they have that mindset. And I think it comes from their parents. It comes from their their groups that surround them, they surround themselves with. I mean, we're seeing that with John Morant and kind of being around the wrong people in this whole gun-waving situations. But it's like, Man, you just got to enjoy life. I think people are always looking forward to the future and what today can help or how today can help their future, which I think is important. But you also have to take the time to really enjoy today, really enjoy everything that's going on in your life because you're going to get to 80, 90 and be like, oh, man, I really wish I would have enjoyed that time more. But I was so focused on becoming the next LeBron James, the next uh, Patrick Mahomes, Mike Trout that I lost myself in it. Yeah, and and see, I I... I hate the NIL. I, I can't. I can't stand it. I think it's it's killing athletics, it's college athletics. You know, which had been traditionally amateur. But I mean, we know better. We know, especially in basketball, the one and done, yeah. and things like that. You know, when I was recruited to play college basketball, the the carrot was your education. You're going to yep. get a college degree for free. Well, not really for free because you were going to put in that extra time, you know, to represent your school. You know, I, I'm telling you what this is going to evolve into. It's going to evolve into a play, uh, pay for play. It's going to be, I'm going to offer you a scholarship to come play for me. Oh, you didn't produce this year? Guess what? You don't have a scholarship next year. I'm giving that scholarship to somebody else. And Gina Oriema, the women's basketball coach at Connecticut, you know, who uh, amazing run, you know, all kinds of championships, talks about how, you know, we recruit these kids. We want you to be part of the family. We want, you know, that, that our team is a family. We want you to be a part of that. So what does it say about you in terms of your character and your humility when, okay, I didn't play as much as I want. I'm going to enter the transfer portal and go play for somebody else. Well, well I thought you were part of the family. Is that, is that how you treat your family? Yeah. You know, I mean, all these kids are, you're going to see all these kids. You know, I was a big shot in high school. I went to college. I hurt my knee. Now I'm not producing as much. Sorry, your scholarship's gone. Good luck. Now where are you? You don't even have a college degree. Mm-hmm. You know, not that, I'm, I, you know, I think necessarily that's a bad thing anymore today. Or, you know, maybe you, you go to a trade school or something like that. That's just as valuable. But, you know, you 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 walk away with nothing. I knew that if I had a you know, scholarship to college, if I applied myself, I was going to graduate. And I did. Now, barely, because my grade point average wasn't that great. But, you know, I mean, I did graduate and I got a tremendous experience playing college basketball that will never be able to take to take be taken away from me. And I also learned I learned about, you know, like you say, being part of a team. I learned how to lose. I learned how to balance my time. I got to study here. I've got to I mean, my daughter played basketball at the Air Force Academy. And I mean, there was no special. I mean, they would take tutors on the road with them. And have two hours of study hall because I'm sorry, I don't care you're an athlete. You still expect it to do well in your, you know, astrophysics class. Mm-hmm. You learn so much from being a, an amateur athlete and college is now turned into just a mini pro kind of, at least in my mind with this. Yeah, athlete. I mean, yeah, sports have become so serious that they've lost the allure of what makes sports special. And it comes from, I mean, the parents that are yelling at the coaches, yelling at the umps, yelling at their kids. I mean... 
here, here's the only time that it's okay to yell at a coach is when, I don't know if you remember this, but Tony La Russa, he was like sleeping in the dugout during a White Sox game and the audience was what's like, hey, hey, we need to change the, you know, we need a runner here. Come on, what's going on here, Tony? Uh, that's the only time it's okay. Um, but a part of that and part of this whole episode is talking about, you know, and I want to pose this question to you, like, how do we enhance our ability to have better conversations with each other and treat people in the better way because it seems so simple. It's like, just be nice to one another. But the fact that we're covering a story like this, the fact that, you know, this little league in um, uh, this New Jersey township of Deptford has to say, hey, if you yell, we're going to make you be the ump. I mean, like, it seems so obvious. It's like, don't be a, a jerk. But the fact that we're covering the story says that people don't it's not as obvious to them. No, it, it, it's not. And, and you know, certainly as a coach, I, you know, there were frustrations with me, you know, with umpire or with referees during basketball. I mean, I'll never forget that, you know, we have the captain's meetings on out there. I'm talking to the team on the bench. The captains come back after talking to the referees and say, uh, referees say they're, they're not going to call anything over the back. I'm like, what? So you're going to pick and choose which rules? I mean, now, now that's high school. The referees are getting paid. I'm getting paid. So I have every right to jump all over them and say, you know, wait a minute. No, if, if somebody goes over my kids back, you have to enforce all the rules. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were times where referees would not make calls because they needed to leave quickly because they had another game across town. And they need now, now that stuff. No, that that I thought was was not important. But I'll, I'll, I'll read you this. This is another thing from Magnus. And I think this goes back to to parents says, so do you want your child to leave sports with a positive experience and life lessons on learning how to fail, compete, be a good teammate, be coached, or do you want to wring every bit of joy out of the process in the slim chance it helps them make it to the top when in reality you're pushing probably hurts over the long haul? And I mean, I, I really think that kind of sums it up. Now, how do we, I, I, I have to value you as a human being. I have to realize, I have to give. I, I have to understand that we may not get along, but that doesn't make you a bad person. And, and, and we're, we're not there. And, and I think part of it is my generation. You know, it, it's our fault for, I, I'll, my wife will tell you this story. When our daughter started playing YMCA basketball, you know, the team played, they were learning the rules. They were learning all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the season, they sat him down and like, okay, when we call your name, come up and get your trophy. And I'm like, well, trophy for what? <laughs> you know, you didn't win anything. All you're doing is yep. teaching those kids is that you're, I mean, our, our daughter's trophy went in the, in the garbage. I'm like, no, you didn't, you didn't do anything to get this trophy other than show up. And I got news for you. If you just show up in life, you're going to be miserable and you're not going to be <laughs> successful. So it, it was our generation of saying you're special. Yep. You know, and I always used to tell my players, like, you're unique. But I got news for you. You're not special. You have unique gifts and talents, but you're not special. So I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you're taking credit for participation trophies, because we as as the generation that got pushed on to participation trophies, we didn't want them. Yeah, you got to earn things in life. Things aren't mm-hmm. given to you. And that's the problem. You know, we think we're owed something. Yep. You know, I, you know, I'm right, Adam. You're wrong. No. Can't you see? Can't you meet me halfway? We've got to start treating each other better. And until we do that, I don't see this changing at all. No, I, I'm I'm right there with you, Terry. I try to look for the positives, but it's like if we're if this situation is happening at Little League games, man, it's it's going the wrong direction. But I think we have a chance to course correct and really uh, 
be good people in this world. And I think it starts by having conversations like this. So Terry, I mean, thank you for uh, your time today and engaging in productive and meaningful conversations, as well as sharing your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer. Listeners, if you would like to support and read more from Terry, you can do so by heading to his website, www.motivationalcheck.com, or by finding him on Instagram at Sustainable Excellence Author. Once again, www.motivationalcheck.com, or on Instagram at Sustainable Excellence Author. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So before we go here, Terry, I want to ask you one final question here. So as someone who spends his life and is deeply involved in the realm of motivation, there's often this heated conversation and battle between motivation and discipline. How do you view the yin and yang between the two beliefs and how they influence our ability to achieve our goals and dreams? I'm going to add one more word to what you just said, and and that's going to be habits. Motivation's not enough. Mm -hmm. If all you have is motivation, you're you're never going to be successful in life because what you need to to put with motivation is good habits and the discipline to to implement those habits. So if you have all three, it's kind of... I talk about it like a three-legged stool. You know, if you have, you take away one of the legs, the stool's out of balance and you're not going to be able to sit on it. But if you have motivation, good habits, and the discipline to, to implement those habits, there's almost nothing you can't do in this mm-hmm. life. And I think that's uh, very important that all those things work together because like I'll watch a motivational video and I'll feel good about it. And then that motivation fleets away and I need those other principles to hold me accountable to what I'm motivated about. Yeah. You've got to have the habits that go along with it that are going to get you toward your goal. And then you've got to have the discipline to implement those habits. And that's where people found, you know, motivation is kind of easy. I mean, I think it's the easy (laughs) part of it. It really is. It's, it's, do you have the right, are you doing the right things? You know, if you're an athlete, are you eating right? Are you getting enough rest? Are you maintaining your body? And, you know, if those things are, yeah, are yes, but you know what? You're not disciplined enough to do that. Then you're you're never going to be successful. Somebody else is going to put all three of those together and outwork you and out hustle you and be better than you. And sorry, it didn't work. And I don't understand why. Well, that's why you didn't have all three legs of the stool. Yeah, I agree. Uh, all right, as always, thank you to all my listeners for tuning into another episode of Water Cooler Talk podcast, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Terry, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and. Well, just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in these bizarre, real news stories. So, Terry, we've gotten to my favorite part of the show, uh, where I hand off the show that once received a comment that said, it's all right, I guess, to you to close out the show, wrap up our conversation in a way leaving people wanting more. Obviously, no pressure, like I said. But if you'll amuse me, and you can turn it down if you don't want to, but I think it's only fitting... I think the people want, I think they need to be motivated. So if you're open, I would love if you close out our conversation, like we're in the locker room of the big game. Maybe it's the Battle of Pulaski, Mares versus Brother Rice. We're down at halftime. We need a little bit of that extra juice before pulling off the greatest sports moment ever conceived. A moment so unbelievable, it makes the writers of One Tree Hill blush. Terry, the room is silent and the floor is yours. Well, Adam, I'm going to tell you a story. About six months ago, I had a nurse ask me, I had my foot amputated in 2018 and my leg amputated in 2020 because of my cancer. And she asked me what it was like to have my foot and my leg amputated. And I told her it hasn't been easy. You know, when you're six foot eight, learning to walk again, falling from this height is not a good thing because you get hurt. But what I told her was, 
cancer can take all my physical faculties. A cancer can't touch my mind, it can't touch my heart, and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am, Adam. That's that's who you are. That's who everybody who's listening to us is. So I'm not telling you, you know, not to eat right, not to exercise, not to get enough rest. I'm not telling you not to do any of that stuff. But that's for the physical part of you. What I am suggesting is that maybe every day you spend a little bit more time working on who you really are. And that's your heart, your mind, and your soul. I'm ready to run through a brick wall there, Terry. <laughs> uh, but no, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Obviously, we talked about a lot. You've done this a lot. You know, you talked about over 700 uh, shows, interviews, podcasts. Uh, we talked about kind of having a little different of a conversation. I think we really did that today. And I appreciate you being open to uh, talking about these stories and talking about things that, you know, are important to me. Um, and so I just thank you for coming on the show and being able to have that conversation today. Well, Adam, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed this. I've done so many podcasts where it's question answer. This has been so <laughs> much fun for me. You do a great job. Please keep doing what you're doing. No, I appreciate that. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real.